right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. Welcome to In Your Corner with Cora Physical Therapy. Once again, we have a cavalcade of medical stars joining us on this particular topic of shoulders. And you're saying to yourself, Scott, I, I don't know enough about shoulders. You will know enough about shoulders after this conversation. But before we get into the conversation, I've got to just get a shout out to Core Physical Therapy. Go to corephysicaltherapy.com. That should be your place to start your journey on good health. And listening to this podcast as well. That's corephysicaltherapy.com. All right, let's get cracking here. Brian, you're first up. Give us a little background on who you are. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, my name is Brian Frost. I'm working with Cora Physical Therapy uh, going over 11 years now. Um, and I've moved up the ranks. I've been in the West Palm Beach, Florida area. Uh, it's an honor to be on with you gentlemen, uh, and I've known Dr. Rautman for a long time now, and uh, we've worked together for a while, so I'm excited for this podcast. Well, let's move up the ranks, mean. Wait, what are you, uh, kryptonite status with uh, Cora? What, what, what is it? <laughs> I'm a senior manager with Cora. Whoa. Try to top that, Dr. Rautman. Give us oh, a little Rautman. background on who you are. Yeah, well, Brian runs a pretty tight ship here in West Palm. Um, the physical therapy team that he has together at CORE is pretty solid, and we're always happy when our patients are seeing him and his team. So uh, uh, we're lucky that he's uh, in our community as well. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I've been in, in Palm Beach County uh, uh, for 21 years. I uh, did my uh, fellowship in shoulder reconstruction and American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon's Shoulder Fellowship in 2000, 1999, 2000, and I've been down here ever since. Uh, my practice is 100% shoulder reconstruction, everything from arthroscopic uh, reconstructive procedures for sports stuff, and a good portion of it is shoulder replacement, which has uh, been the focus of most of the research that I've been involved in. And uh, we uh, publish a number of papers on this topic, and I think that you might you know, scratch, scratch into that a little bit tonight, but uh, either way, I'm happy to talk anything shoulder um, uh, anytime with you guys. Not anything about, hey, hey I got this hand problem. It's sort of <laughs> stiff. Can I ask yeah, him? We, 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 got, we, we got a guy for that. <laughs> we got a guy for that. All right, Dr. Rick, it's all yours. He knows something about orthopedics, too. <laughs> so first of all, thank you, everybody. Brian, Dr. Robin, thank you very much for... Um, being on our podcast, and this is this me a great podcast because this is really touching sort of the millennial 2023 database and and understanding kind of where research is going and total shoulders are going. So before we get started, just give our listeners kind of a, a, a brief introduction into how you got started doing total shoulders. Tell us about your fellowship just a little bit, and then kind of tell us about how things matured using AI or machine learning as it resulted in uh, understanding the database, understanding what we can learn, and understanding uh, projections as to how patients can do? It's a great question. Thank you. So I did my residency in Philadelphia. As a orthopedic resident in Philadelphia, you see a ton of stuff and did a lot of 
knee replacement surgery, ACLs, hand surgery, spine, the standard orthopedic stuff that you get trained very well in. There was a uh, a shoulder team in Philadelphia that was uh, revered uh, at the time with uh, Jerry Williams and Joe Iannotti at University of Pennsylvania. And they ran a, a shoulder fellowship there. Um, and I wanted to spend some time with them. So I got to sneak off and do a little bit of elective work with them. And I was just fascinated because at that time, shoulder replacements were very uncommonly done. And knee replacements and hip replacements were pretty much a standard procedure. Uh, but shoulder replacements were, were only sort of like a mystical type of operation that unless you trained with someone who was an expert in it, that there was no way that you could really do it well. And if you tried, you should expect it to be a failure because you didn't know the secret sauce. Um, so I went and did a, a shoulder fellowship because I wanted to learn how to do this stuff that all, that these that geniuses at Penn were doing. And uh, so I went down to Columbus, Georgia, to a place called the Houston Clinic. And uh, with a gentleman named George McCluskey, I did a year-long fellowship in just shoulder reconstructive surgery. So it was a year of being immersed in rotator cuff surgery. And the father of shoulder surgery in the U.S., a guy named Charles Neer, uh, George McCluskey was his last fellow. So I was able to really just immerse myself in the history of shoulder replacement surgery and learn from an expert. And then I came down here into an environment where there really weren't any other people doing this operation. And gradually, little by little, a practice that was dedicated to that type of reconstructive stuff grew. And so now I'm down here for 20 years and my practice is um, you know, all shoulder reconstruction and the shoulder replacement uh, practice in South Florida and West Palm Beach. We have so many retirees and so many people that are in their 70s and 80s that just have degenerative shoulder conditions that it's really a great place to learn how to do shoulder surgery in the elderly the right way. Uh, so I started doing shoulder replacement surgery and I got involved with a study group that was looking to follow and track the results of shoulder replacement surgery. And little by little, we started to enter and enroll our patients in this type of study. And now I have around uh, 1,200, 1,300 shoulder replacements in this um, study. It's a multi-center, multi-country uh, study. It's an international group. We have around 11 or 12,000, I think, patients enrolled altogether. Um, and we published a number of papers about the things that we've learned along the way. Um, and to finish with what the question that you asked, um, in once you get the, that volume of data, and I mean, each one of these patients on their preoperative data form has 291 variables that we're looking at. So we took all this information and entered it into a data bank. And now we can ask, you know, when someone's this height, this, this weight with hair, that's this color, um, what can you expect their result to be at, at, at two and a half years on a Tuesday? Um, and we have the capacity to really uh, give good uh, predictive uh, information about those types of patients. Well, so explain how your database differs from standard databases. Obviously, there's a lot of articles and literature that talk about rotator cuff repair, uh, superior capsule reconstructions, etc. What what is different about your database from the standard database? And tell us a little bit about SAS scoring and kind of how this this works. I, I think people really need to understand. You know, you go to the doctor, you get your shoulder replaced. How does that translate into the data that's teaching orthopedic surgeons what to do, and how is your data different? Thank you. So. Um, what we've done is we capture information on patients beforehand. 
And then we capture a good amount of information post-op at a series of different follow-up points. So you know, six weeks, three months, six months, a year, and we follow people out to 10 years. Um, and that's a pretty significant undertaking to be able to track people down and really find out exactly how these patients are doing. Um, and then we try to, in some way, measure those outcomes. Because if you're a patient of mine and I do a shoulder replacement on you and you come in and your x-rays look great and your motion's okay. And I say, wow, I think your shoulder is fantastic, but you don't like the way your shoulder feels or the way your shoulder moves. Well, I might think it's great, but if you don't think it's great, then that's really not a win. So the, uh, the thing that we use to measure this are things called patient reported outcome scores from which patients fill out questionnaires and uh, through validated methods, they're able to actually get a score of zero to 100, zero to 30, whatever it might be. And that way you can see how patients are across the board uh, in terms of how the results are. Uh, one of the things that we did was because we had so much information um, so much data, it, usually these research papers look at a group of individuals and you say, okay, let's see how right-handed smokers do compared to right-handed non-smokers. And you can take a group of 100 compared to a group of 100 and you can say, well, right-handed smokers don't do as well. That's a standard statistical analysis looking back and trying to connect and form some type of inference or association between different variables. What we were able to do is something that's really way more exciting and interesting, which is to start using artificial intelligence to help predict the results of shoulder replacements before they even occur. So the same type of technology that you have in your house, when you open up your Netflix account and it says, hey, you watched The Born Identity, you probably are going to want to watch this. And it, get, and it gives you a suggestion of what you should watch. And you go, man, Netflix is great. How do they figure out that that's what I wanted to watch? Um, it's the same type of artificial intelligence type of algorithm, um, but except we're doing it from an orthopedic and shoulder standpoint, where we're able to really now predict the results of shoulder surgery before we even do it. And, and so, Born Identity was and a great that's movie, obviously very, I'm sorry. <laughs> Born Identity was a great movie. Good choice, Dr. Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I don't know how he knew that. Um, so, so I think you, you've got this data. So, so how does that translate to your office practice? So, you you you've got information, and tell us how this helps counsel your patients. Uh, explain how how the how the PROs kind of help you tell the patient how they're going to do and what they can do to do better, and how it improves sort of the outcomes of your surgical practice? You know, I think that, you know, Brian and the folks at Cora can tell you that, you know, in the end, patients really define what uh, their goals are and what their expectations are with anything that you're doing for them. So if someone comes to the office with a horrible arthritic shoulder and they can barely move it, and they say, you know what I really want to be able to do when this is all over is to swing a golf club and have it not hurt. And if that's their personal definition of success, to answer the question of, well, should you be able to do that? Or you might not be able to do that based on a number of different things. Um, with these sophisticated 
software algorithms, we could actually plug in the patient's motion before surgery and a couple of other variables, 19 in total, and we can predict motion and these outcome scores from greater than 90% uh, accuracy. So we can give patients not just you know, the experience of, hey, you're working with me, you're working with Brian, you're working with people who it's not our first rodeo, we're going to step up and do the best we can. But we actually have data to support that if everything goes the way that it should, this is the motion you should have, this is the pain level you should have, this is the strength and capacity that you should have with your arm. So it gives us a sense of confidence for the right patient. On the other side of it is sometimes someone might come in and have a thoroughly unrealistic expectation in terms of what they would want to have as a result of the operation. And this allows you to, to, to really have that kind of realistic conversation and say, hey, listen, I'm not sure that uh, doing clean and jerks overhead after this operation is a good idea. Um, so, you know, maybe you should just uh, work with Brian in his, uh, in his weekly workouts instead. <laughs> And I think that's a very good characterization. So we're going to dial us back for a second. Brian, give us your, your pre-op assessment and what you can do pre-op for someone who's having a TSR. Tell us your evaluation and, and you know, why should we go to, why should we have prehab before we're getting our shoulder replaced? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Dr. Lehman. So I, I would say that, you know, Dr. Rabin was right on the, the button there. What Having a conversation with, with the patients as far as their goals, um, it's important for us to know going into it, what is it that they're looking to achieve? What is it that they want to get out of the therapy? What is it they want to get back to in their life, whether it be, you know, pickleball sport or uh, golf or, or if it's just to, to get back to doing something with their grandchildren. But um, certainly having that goal conversation with them. We use uh, in Cora, we use a, a, the software photo. Is, it's called photo. It stands for focus on therapeutic outcomes. Uh, and it allows us information, which again, it's not as scientific and AI focused. It's more of that stuff that Dr. Ta Dr. Rabman was talking about, where it was more of the patient's responsiveness to, uh, to uh, their progress and what they believe they're progressing and how they believe they're progressing. So we do use that as a way to have the conversation with the patients as far as their goals and what they want to achieve and where they stand so far in the therapy, whether it be as a prehab or as a non-surgical option. But uh, in terms of the prehab, what we really want to try to achieve to answer your question is a baseline that gets them in the door and gets them in the surgery room with a better starting point than where they were a week or two weeks or three weeks before that. Um, as much as we can achieve in terms of functional movement, functional mobility, functional strength, so that they can go into surgery with the best possible baseline, if you will, it will allow them a better opportunity to have a successful outcome. Uh, and I'm sure Dr. Rabin have seen that time and time again, that, you know, we, we, we get, go, we go in with better, we, we head out with better and we, we recover with better. So, uh, there's definitely value to that prehab. And, and Dr. Dr. Robin, so kind of moving along those lines, who's, who's the prototypical patient? Give us two things. Who's your, your, your prototypical, is it degenerative arthritis, post-traumatic arthritis, just getting old, and what can they expect? And then the next part of that, I'm going to kick it back to Brian. I'm going to ask him for post-op rehab. So with that in mind, kind of tell us who's your best candidate and what does this data tell us in terms of who's your best candidate, smokers, non-smokers, et cetera, diabetics, and then tell us kind of expectations because the first thing that a patient asks me i don't do total shoulders i do a lot of rotator cuff surgery is when can i go back and play golf when can i go back and throw a baseball etc when can i paint a house so kind of walk us through that process just a little bit 
Sure. So down in uh, Palm Beach County, we have a, a, a wonderful retirement down here. And uh, so believe it or not, my, one of my most typical patients is the late to mid seventies grandma who has terrible pain and bad function and is looking to, and then for years has been maybe been given shots by one doctor and tried a number of different things. And the pain has gotten to the point where it's really negatively impacting their quality of life. And they're looking to try to find out what they can do beyond what's already been offered to them um, in terms of uh, pain relief and functional improvement. That's probably the most common individual with regards to shoulder replacements, obviously rotator cuffs, a different group. Then there's another group which are the males and the more common group in males are they're younger, they're more muscular. They tend to have a, a bit of a more, uh, uh, higher demand, uh, in terms of what they expect to do with, with their shoulder after it's done. Um, so those are two largely different operations for the elderly female with a bad shoulder and bad rotator cuff. We're looking at reverse shoulder replacement as typically the operation we're doing for that uh, individual. And for the younger, the higher demand individual that doing that 50s and 60s uh, that has just osteoarthritis, that's more of an anatomic shoulder replacement candidate. And the, the rehab requirements post-op for those are very, very different. Um, the anatomic patient needs to be handled very delicately for a window of time to avoid damage to the repair work we do on the way out of that operation. But the reverse shoulder replacement, which sounds even more exciting, is one of the more easy operations to recover from. Those patients, they wear a sling for three weeks, and then they can advance typically as rapidly as they as they are comfortable. Um, in that situation, therapy has more of a role in holding them back than advancing them forward. Because a lot of times, people really want to get going and going and going. And if you're in the hands of an experienced physical therapist, then they can help prevent problems from occurring while, while uh, you know, uh, ushering them along through their recovery period. Just one last thing before I, I uh, before I stop was talking about what you asked Brian before with regards to the prehab. I think it could be really really helpful, particularly for people that have stiffness that is not related to bony um, abnormalities. Um, we, we've actually shown in some of our research that the more range of motion that somebody has prior to surgery, uh, the more motion they tend to get after the operation. Um, you really set the floor effectively, and it's all progress from there. Oh, so I'm going to interrupt you just for a minute because you were talking about two different operations, and I just want to make it clear. Kind of give us the in indications for reverse total, no rotator cuff, and somebody who has an anatomical total joint and, and kind of kind of explain the differences between those two and how the implants put in, et cetera. Sure, sure. Um, so sh total shoulder replacement involves replacing both sides of the shoulder joint. So there's a the shoulder's a ball and socket joint, uh, just like the hip, except it's a much smaller socket in your shoulder. Uh, so when you're doing a total shoulder replacement, you're replacing both ed both surfaces of this of the joint. So an anatomic shoulder replacement it, 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 hang on, just sorry about that. The uh, anatomic shoulder replacement involves replacing the ball with a ball and a socket with a socket. And a reverse shoulder replacement involves replacing the, the ball with a socket and the socket with the ball. If you don't replace the, if, if someone doesn't have a good rotator cuff, then you can't do a standard total shoulder replacement because the function of the shoulder won't be very good. 
But if they have a bad rotator cuff, you can do a reverse shoulder replacement. In fact, that operation was designed specifically for that circumstance. The rotator cuff being the group of muscles that help the arm move in space. Uh, the, the reverse shoulder replacement is designed specifically to make up for the, the loss of that uh, those muscles and can restore the arm function overhead very nicely. Brian, why don't you walk us through standard rehab for an anatomic total shoulder replacement and then as Dr. Rautman kind of hinted at, the uh, difference between rehab for a standard and a reverse and kind of your role as, as sort of the moderator, because Dr. Rautman's right, people feel better and they want to, you know, when can I go back and paint my house? When can I do a one-handed push-up? They get crazy. So kind of give us both, both rehabs and give us a time frame and give us some realistic return. I don't want to say to sport, maybe return to sport to golf, but these are elderly people, maybe return to normal activities, pain-free activities. Uh, yeah, definitely. So, and Dr. Rotman kind of put the nail on the head there in terms of what we typically see. So those total shoulder replacements, the anatomical shoulder replacements, I typically handle them very much like our rotator cuff repairs. There's going to be a standard protocol. There's going to be a well and kind of recovery progressively is increased um, from a passive range of motion standpoint and then to active assisted and and eventually to active and then you know strengthening progressions as we move along much like we would with a rotator cuff repair um, in those cases we usually run into more of manual stretching is a big emphasis in those early stages um, we're doing a lot of the work for the patient to help them recover as much range of motion because their range of motion is a larger range to recover. They will be able to receive and achieve more of that range of motion. It's more limited by pain and uh, progression and, and compliance. I think one of the things that I, I wanna touch on is compliance with home programs because uh, in either of these populations, the success comes from their compliance. Um, I always tell my patients 70% of the outcomes they're gonna achieve are from how well they're gonna do their homework. Um, and, and so we come into therapy once or twice, three times a week for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And what we're doing here is progressions. What we're doing is, is guiding them along the course of recovery, but what they do at home and how well they're listening to our instructions and, uh, and how long, how well they're avoiding those, uh, those activities that they shouldn't be doing quite yet. Uh, those are really the make or break in terms of the success factor that they'll have, uh, ultimately in achieving their goals. Um, and so typically with, with, with the total shoulder, anatomical shoulder, we're going to see them a, a longer course of therapy. They're going to come in for several months, um, be able to get up to that level where they're at that return to function, return to sport, if you want to call it that, um, a little bit longer along the, the, the timeline there. Uh, when we talk about reverse shoulders, again, typically they don't need as much uh, of the step-to-step -step approach. Um, it's pretty much once, once they come into us a couple weeks out, uh, it's free reign to kind of get going as long as they're tolerating those progressions. And that's a big if, um, because again, what Dr. Rahman was saying is that these patients are generally going to be younger. Uh, they have that really aggressive goal of returning to their sport or, or their activity, or some of them, a lot of them are still working. Uh, so if they're working, uh, they want to get back to doing their job. Uh, and so we do have to kind of pull back the reins a little bit. We do have to help guide them along uh, and make sure they still have a progress. There are plenty of those patients that we still do an active assisted program in the beginning for a bit to allow them a better successful active range of motion to strengthening progression over the next couple of weeks. But the timeline is going to be weeks rather than months 
um, with these reverse shoulders. And again, it's we're not expecting them to achieve maximum range of motion as we would with an anatomical shoulder. So it's more about, is their pain levels down? That was the main focus of that surgery. Did that reduce the pain? Are they feeling better than they did before? Are they happy with their outcomes so far? And let's go ahead and move forward with what are realistic goals and how can we help them with those goals? I love the way you said that because, you know, as, 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 as Rick would, you know, saying before, you're doing a lot of rotator cuff surgery. I think that shoulder replacement surgery is very much anatomical replacement. Recovering from that is very much like recovering from like an arthroscopic subscapularis repair because, you just move it along nice and slowly, get to the point where things are healed, and then you can start progressing. And I think we probably release our patients to uh, competitive athletics at a similar time uh, in terms of when you release a pretty big rotator cuff repair versus when you release an anatomic. You know, I, I think it's an interesting comment because in my experience, and again, I don't do totals, I, I actually think the patients that I refer to my partners that do totals um, actually probably come back a little quicker than a big rotator cuff repair. And uh, I think people expect this to be just a long drawn out, terrible procedure. And maybe it was in 2000, 2005, but today um, you're not in the hospital for very long. And the expectations in my opinion are very, very good. And people do very, very well. And I think they're always surprised how well they're doing. I'll see some of these people back at six weeks because I'm treating them for something else. They've got full motion. They don't really have any pain. May still be a little bit weak, but they're very far along and they may be a lot farther along than my rotator cuff repair. So, so I'm glad you said that. So in terms of the, the AI analysis, tell us, can we predict complications? Can we predict changes that we should make in our pre-op status? Or, or what can we tell the patient that this analysis is going to give us that we can then relate for a better outcome? I, you know what, I, I, I'm going to give a like a 30 second summary of what this analysis really does and how it does it. And then I'll, I think that with uh, after laying that ground rule, I think it'll be better to understand exactly how we are able to predict stuff. So if we take if we take the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning technology and regular computer programming is that regular computer programming is written by us. You know, we write the computer program. So if you go to the bank and you want to take a mortgage out of the house, they say the house is X and you're going to put this much down and this is how many months you're going to pay your mortgage for and this is your insurance rate. And it spits out an amortization schedule and says, you're going to pay this much a month and it's going to be this much insurance, uh, this much uh, interest, this much principal. And that type of stuff, that's a program written by a person to to take the inputs and give you that data at the end. Artificial intelligence and machine learning protocols are a little different than that in that we already have the, the data and the results. So what we do is we take the whole data set, we, we, we hide anywhere from a third to half of it, aside, we hide that information from the computers. And then we tell the computer, here's a group of people that have had shoulder replacement surgery and here are their results. You have 291 inputs on the front end. Can you please write an algorithm that can effectively predict these results for us? And you let the computer go and go and go and go. And after it goes it far, far enough, it comes back and says, we have a really good algorithm that can predict these results. And the way that we test if that algorithm is any good is by exposing the data that we've hidden from the computer to the same 
algorithm to see if it's any good. And that's how we know if it's accurate or not. Okay. So when we look at someone preoperatively and we want to see if there's things that we can predict in terms of in terms of certain complications, in machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's all very, very patient specific. It's about that individual that you're looking at and the specific things that make that person who they are, whether they're hypertensive, diabetic, have a cardiac issue, their age, their arm dominance, if they've had previous surgery before. All those things factor into what's going to be specifically at risk for that individual. So the software kicks out and says, this is how much motion we can expect. And this person has a 6% likelihood of having this specific complication. It's fascinating. Um, and, you know, surgical judgment and experience and practice takes you to a certain degree where you see someone walking in and you can tell this person's going to do well or, oh, this person's at risk for being a problem. This really does reinforce our uh, our inherent biases that we have because we've seen it over and over again with experience. This actually sort of validates a lot of the things that you sort of pick up just by keeping your eyes open and paying attention for a number of years. That's excellent. Um, and, and so how does that relate to a local doctor who's maybe doing 10, 12 total shoulders a year, how, how can he get this data and how can he use this data in his day-to-day -day practice? You know, the, the, this is uh, this is all relatively uh, new and exciting technology. We're sort of at the beginning of it with regards to uh, shoulder surgery. Hip and knee surgery has been doing it a little bit uh, longer than we have. Uh, and even more fascinating is like the radiology uh, specialty has really done a whole lot of cool stuff with uh, you know, analyzing chest x-rays and stuff like that and seeing tumors that doctors would have a hard time seeing. Uh, I think that right now we're sort of at the tip of the iceberg in terms of at the, at the clinical applicability of it. Um, right now, it, uh, this predictive analytics stuff is sort of wrapped in with a preoperative planning software that we use to plan surgery for patients when we're looking at their bony deformity that's associated with the arthritis. Um, so as it becomes a little bit more user-friendly, I think it's going to become a little bit easier for, for the, for the uh, general orthopedic surgeon who's doing a little bit of shoulder replacement here and there to find it applicable. It may be the kind of thing where somebody comes in who they think would be a slam dunk operation and they run them through this and it says, these are all the complications that you may expect to have. And they might say, you know what, I think I want to send them to the university for this case because this is a little bit uh, a little bit more sophisticated than I want to get myself into. And if you're comfortable doing the easy ones and you don't want to do the hard ones, this software might tell you this is an easy one. Um, and uh, so it's, it's that type of thing that might be helpful. That was great. And, and give us the future. I mean, no one can predict the future. No one knows who's going to win the Super Bowl. But get, get, give us the future of, of AI and, and, and not only AI in terms of research, but how is AI going to impact our day-to-day -day treatment of patients, our day-to-day -day surgeries, day-to-day uh, -day total shoulders? How, how, how can AI help us moving forward, not just in terms of the research, but in terms of our clinical practice? Well, I think that just like in any type of technical surgical procedure, we have lots of different ways that we could put a shoulder replacement in down to the sizing of the implants, where to put them in the shoulder, how big, how little, should it be more north, south, east, or west inside the shoulder? And if you hearken back to the days of 
the early shoulder replacement gurus, it was sort of like a, the, 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 what made a great shoulder replacement surgeon great was that they would open up the shoulder and look in and say, ooh, this looks like a medium to me. And they take a medium out and magically a medium would fit all the time uh, because they had seen enough to know that it was a medium. Uh, but in the, what the software and the artificial intelligence and the machine learning has to do for us is that right now we have a lot of information on data points that are patient related, but the next phase of this research is gonna involve more uh, CT scan data. So we're gonna be able to take information from the patient imaging and then combine that in with this patient specific data and we may be able to understand technical aspects of the surgery that should be done in specific ways to maximize the outcome for each individual patient so you'll be able to find that individual that's at risk for some type of horrific complication that if you use a specific implant in a specific way in a specific location that you can minimize that complication from happening um, so over the next five years, it's going to be a pretty rapid uptick in this technology, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Will we get to a place where robotics are going to replace you and me? I mean, is some robot going to come in and do this operation, and then we're going to get a robot to do Brian's job and Scotty's job, or what, what, what do you see coming down the pike? Yeah, I, fortunately, I think there's still going to be a, a, a need for someone to hold the blade uh, and to and, and to and to use the drill. You know, th th there is robotics entering into shoulder replacement surgery, but the robots are still something that we have to uh, control and uh, make sure that everything is going properly in the operating room. Uh, we do use computer navigation in the OR. Uh, where we take the CAT scans and create a three-dimensional model of the shoulder, and we can see that three-dimensional model while we're operating, which is really mind-blowing stuff that you can see inside the body while you're working. I could be drilling on a flat surface, and then the computer will show me behind that flat surface where that drill bit is actually going. It's really mind-bending in terms of where we started, where I started 20 years ago, 21 years ago, and where we are now. I can only imagine another 10 years where we're going to be. Uh, fortunately, I think that as an orthopedic surgeon, we're still going to be the ones doing the surgery. That was great. That was great. So, Brian, what do we forget? What should we tell everybody about the rehab, their home exercises, what to do when they're six months, status post to total shoulder replacement? What do we forget? What should we add? Yeah, I think the, I think the big take home message is, is that technology is really starting to help us out in these procedures and in these uh, situations. It, the, what once was a really fearful idea for the the average individual to to think about having their shoulder replaced or their joint replaced, it's becoming so much more commonplace, and the the technology and the implants are becoming so great that. The recovery that we're seeing on our end is is so much easier. Uh, I see a lot of Dr. Routman's patients that come through and they're just ecstatic with the recovery, um, the pain levels being decreased. There's more options on the table than there used to be, you know, 10 years ago or whatnot. Uh, and so that gives these these people a, a chance, a hope, a, a motivator that will allow them to succeed in therapy that they can get back to doing X, Y, or Z goal of theirs. Uh, or to be able to do something that they haven't been able to do for a very long time because of arthritis or pain um, or functional loss. So, um, you know, just be committed to the therapy from the start to the finish. I think that's the biggest take home message. And, and I think Dr. Rubman would echo that comment because if you're going to get into this, you're going to want to see it through to the end and you're going to want to give your full commitment to the rehab process part of it because that will get them that goal. 
Um, and so I just think that, you know, as long as they're willing to be committed uh, and they can foresee their long-term success that they're going to have, um, they're going to do well with this procedure and it's going to be pretty exciting. Thank you very much. Dr. Ralvin, what do we forget? Well, I, I think it's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you guys. I mean, the, the one thing I would want to emphasize you know, to what Brian was saying is that there really is no substitute for an experienced, calm, knowledgeable physical therapist in the recovery for all these different operations. Uh, when you see when, when you see patients that are anxious and they're really struggling mentally to get themselves through uh, this process, anxiety basically just gives pain a megaphone. And what we really want to do is have someone with a steady hand, not just on the surgical side, but in the recovery side to be able to really keep everything nice and calm, reined in appropriately, so we can really maximize our, our outcomes. Well, one of the things that we looked at and what we found, we looked at patients that what did patients benefit from when, when they went to therapy? Yes, they got their motion back. They did all the, they, they had precautions to follow. But one of the things that they learned was that they're doing okay. And if you have someone like Brian, who's been doing this for a decade, and he looks at someone and says, hey, you're right where you should be. You're exactly on track. You're doing perfectly. The, you can see the stress just leave their body like, oh, man, I thought I was way behind. I'm, this is right where I should be. This is great. And then suddenly that, that, that day went from a day of concern and worry to a day of validation that everything's going just fine. Uh, and the, the difference between someone that's fresh out of, the, out of the stable and someone that has a few gray hairs is that you know, they know what normal looks like and they know what abnormal looks like. So you know, working with experienced crew is a very important thing. Excellent. Guys, this was, this was very, very informational. Uh, I, I think you're right. This is where the technology is going, not just research, but I think in terms of data points, especially uh, we do quite a bit of this data point research looking at ACL uh, in terms of tunneling, et cetera. And, and, and I think you're right. In 10 years, we're going to look back and think, you know, we're Fred Flintstone. So I think at this point, um, the research like you said, is mind boggling. It's just going to get better. And we are going to be able to pick out those outliers and say, wow, this is just not the guy that I should be operating on. And that's going to give us all a few less gray hairs. I, I, I think that's a big benefit. For both you guys, you both were outstanding. Thank you. And I want to kick it over to handsome Scott over there. <laughs> handsome. I like that. Hey, I, I, because I'm a technical geek, I like this stuff. I like AI. I like machine learning. I like how it's being applied, not just from a medical perspective, but from into industry. Is the, and this is to you, Dr. Routman, is there the, is there a platform for other professionals like yourself to contribute to that data lake and begin to grow that? Because machine learning is, is always wanting to get more and more and refine and refine. Is there, does that community exist? Yeah, it does. Uh, I was involved in a project with uh, the folks from uh, the Campbell Clinic, Rothman Institute, and Hospital for Special Surgery, where, where a, uh, a, a predictive program was put together. And then that algorithm was gifted to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Uh, so the AAOS now has that in their hands, and they've created a shoulder and elbow registry program. So 
surgeons can submit their patient data into this uh, registry. It's all anonymized. So the patient's names are not a part of the, the registry, but you can then use those tools that will predict a two-year ASES score before the surgery is done as a part of that registry program. Um, now, one of the real important things for that data lake that you're referring to for a supervised machine learning program yeah. is that the data that gets entered into it really needs to be very well annotated. I can't just be like lots of the, the data can't be messy. It's got to be so clean because just like anything else, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, so one of the things that we work hard on is making sure that we've got super clean data. And in our study group, we have uh, all sorts of quality controls in place to make sure that we're that what we're giving the system is is good. See, and I like the fact that you guys are focused on standards because you're absolutely spot on in the world of data collection, data analytics. Uh, it, it could be a tsunami of data. And if you're not managing that data, it could be a tsunami of garbage. Yes. And then it just defeats the purpose. And then, of course, nobody trusts the outcomes or the results of your of your solution. So that's 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 pretty doggone cool. Cool stuff. I never knew uh, there was just, like shoulder just, replacements. Just to say, Rick, Rick was saying before about the Super Bowl, I do think that I did consult the software and Evan McPherson is going to kick a field goal to win the Super Bowl. I'm putting my money on that. Yeah, wow. I was, I was waiting for that. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Robin and uh, uh, Brian and, uh, of course, Dr. Rick. Thank you very much for being on In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Again, before you guys leave, before the listeners leave, go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. Find out more. Great website. It, you can navigate it. If I can navigate it, you can navigate it. That's corephysicaltherapy.com. All right. Good jobs, Jen. Well Thank done. you. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much for joining In Your Corner.